Hey everybody, welcome back to Making Waves Podcast with me, Tom Prather. Today we have Emmy-winning keynote speaker, workplace expert, and professional drummer, rock on, Clint Pulver. We had an amazing conversation about his new book, I Love It Here. We also talked about his undercover millennial video series, topics like what makes a good boss, and connecting people with the power of drums. But before we begin... This episode is sponsored by Jesse Itzler's BYLR 30 Days of Excellence and iconic clothing brand, Bridges Great Outdoors. First, you know Jesse as the renowned entrepreneur and best-selling author. 30 Days of Excellence is a BYLR program that offers live weekly life coaching with some of the world's best experts in their fields. Check out some of these guests, legendary Wim Hof, did his breathing exercises this morning, best-selling author and brain coach Jim Quick, and neurosurgeon and medical expert Sanjay Gupta, just to name a few. It's hosted by Jesse, as well as former Navy SEAL and endurance athlete Chad Wright, enough said, and retired NFL linebacker and celebrity trainer Mark Brown. I'm literally on these calls every Wednesday. They're great. And most importantly, it's the BYLR community that I love. Um, I've developed some lifelong friendships from this group. We're accountability partners with each other. We get, literally get together. So when you sign up for 30 Days of Excellence, you get four live calls a week, access to Jesse's BYLR course, normally a $399 value, one new challenge theme a month, a 30-day roadmap for successful habits, and unlimited access to past calls. I actually go back to those calls quite often and just kind of review uh it costs 60 dollars a month but if you're a making waves listener you get 50 percent off the first month to give it a try just go to bylr.com click on 30 days of excellence and use the code waves w-a-v-e-s at checkout i personally again i personally love this community and thrilled that we can offer this value to you now let's talk bridges great outdoors Bridges is a world-famous clothing brand that changed the face of fashion as we know it. They are the company that brought the rugby to America and the creators of the iconic Warthog logo. I've been buying Bridges since I was a kid, and they are back after a 20-year hiatus, better than before. I like to say that Bridges is prep with a punk rock attitude with a little bit of surfer mixed in. Right now, our listeners get an exclusive 10% off your order at warthog.vip. Just use code WAVES, W-A-V-E-S, at checkout. I gotta say, I waited some time to bring on the perfect sponsors that I actually use and I actually love. They are the real deal, both of them. So please help support them if you can, just like we do. All right, so in the words of Motley Crue, on with the show. I'm excited to have you on Making Waves. Thanks for being on. Yeah, it's um, an honor, dude. I appreciate it, Tom. You, I'm looking at my notes here, you're an Emmy Award winner, motivational keynote speaker, author, workforce expert, and drummer. But yeah, first, man. I got a rapid fire series of questions for you. Okay, let's do it. Are you ready? I'm in. All right, so it's either one, one or the other. Okay. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Rolling Stones or Beatles? Rolling Stones. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Yeah, you're a Utah guy. Yeah, dude. 
I love the mountains. Love if you if if you were able to see the beach more often, would that sway your answer? I don't think so. Okay. I am I like, every time I go to the beach, I'm like, oh, this is nice. It's cool. But then I go and get in the water, <clears throat> and I get out. I'm all sticky, you know. And I smell like the ocean, the sand. I'm not. I don't, dude. Maybe it's just because I was raised in the mountains. <laughs> but yeah, man, I'm a mountain guy over over a beach. So you're saying all the things I love about it. <laughs> yeah, right. People are like, I love the sand. I love smelling like a. I'll a, hop a in fish. the. I'll hop in the ocean before I head home, just so I can have that on my skin. There you go, dude. It's, it's the new cologne. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, PC or Mac? Uh, Mac. East or West Coast? West Coast. Uh, Kramer or Costanza? Kramer. All right, got two more. Superman or Batman? Batman. Uh, Kardashian. This is my favorite one. Kardashians or Osbournes? Osbournes. Very good. (laughs) Very good. Some right, amazing questions, well, Tom. You have quite, the, <laughs> you have quite the background, and I'm glad we connected. Um, but where I want to start first is Clint, the drummer. Tell me about him, dude. I was the kid growing up in school. I, I had a hard time sitting still. I just, I still have a hard time sitting still. I would, I would just tap. My right hand would tap. My left hand would tap. And obviously, anybody that's in the room, they're like, "Do it one more time," and I'm gonna hurt you and somebody else like it just it's annoying and i got called the twitcher kids called me the tapper all the time and even the teachers were so frustrated i got sent to the principal's office principals like sit on your hands kid and that worked for like two seconds and it was just an issue and i had a teacher one day and his name was mr jensen and he looked at me while i was tapping in class and he said he said kid in the back he said listen you he said i need to i need to talk to you after class we're going to have a conversation. And I'm thinking in my, my mind, like, this is it. I'm getting kicked out of school as a 10-year-old. And all the other kids in the class are like, oh, Twitcher's going to die. <laughs> Bell rings. It's a completely empty room, minus me and Mr. Jensen. We go to the back. And he sits down and he says, listen. He said, Clint, I, I've watched you, man. And everybody says you're the problem. Everybody says you're an issue. You're, you're the kid that's on the list. He said, you tap on my, in my class and you tap in everybody else's class. He said, but I've watched you though. And you'll sit there, you'll do your assignment, you'll start writing with your right hand and then you'll tap with your left hand. And then you'll switch the pen. You switch the pen and you start writing with your left hand. And then you tap with your right hand. And I'm like, yeah, like, what's your point? He's like, he's like you're ambidextrous. And I was like, no, I'm Presbyterian. He said, no, no. It's like, that's not what it means, dude. He, he said, try this. He said, can you tap your head and rub your belly? And I could do it without thinking about it. And he's like, okay, now switch it. He's like, then can you rub your head and then tap your belly? And back and forth without any issue, Tom, I could do it. And he sat back in his desk and he smiled and he looked at me and he said, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. Oh my gosh. And some people hear that and they're like, what's the difference between those two things? <laughs> Get out. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. And Tom, for me, I have always been somebody that believes in the power of moments. I think that's what we really remember in our lives. We don't remember days. We remember moments. And the moments are the things that really shape a great story. Yeah. And in that moment, Mr. Jensen, he leaned back in his desk and he opened up the top drawer and he reached inside and he took out my very first pair of drumsticks. Really? 
my very first pair. Do you still have he them? Said, he said, Clint, these are for you. I was 10. I was 10 years old. Yeah. And he was like, dude, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just want you to keep them in your hands. Keep them in your hands and let's just see. And that was 22 years ago, man. And I can sit here honestly today and tell you that 22 years ago, literally to this exact moment, I have tried my best to keep my promise to Mr. Jensen. And for 22 years, I've had the opportunity to tour and record all over the world as a professional drummer. I've been on America's Got Talent. I, do, I remember when I graduated high school, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And so what do you do when, you're, when you graduate high school and you have no clue? You go to college, right? <laughs> you go to college. And I graduated in 2012 with a bachelor's degree and, and zero college debt. Zero. And that was all from music scholarships. And I don't say all those things to go, wow, good for you, Clint, or oh, what a, what a list of accolades. That's not the reason. The reason I say that story is because one person, one educator who decided to advocate for a kid, not just develop them. One teacher who looked at me and said, you're not a problem, you're an opportunity. And in doing so, it changed my whole life. So where did drumming take you? Like, who did you play with? Where'd you go? Yeah, man, I, I played with uh, Carrie Underwood, Tim McGraw. I had a short stint with the Blue Man Group. Um, I was a recording artist for a long time or, you know, spent a ton of time in the studio uh, playing with different artists. That was a, a lot of fun. I coached the Utah Valley University drum line for seven years. Uh, I started the group when I was in college and I called it the Green Man Group. Uh, we all dress in green. Nobody knows who we are. We don't talk, but we can just, you know, they shred on the drums. And that's a legacy that still is is continuing today at the school and they provide 22 full tuition scholarships for drummers. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, man, it's been a, it's been an amazing ride. And then I still, we use the drums as a part of the presentation in my keynotes when I go and speak all over the world. And I tell that story third person. Nobody knows that I'm the kid in the story. And then we reveal the drums and I sit down and we just, we rock the house and it's cool because it, it shows people what influence can look like. Yeah. Sometimes we don't always get to see, you know, what happens because we said the right thing at the right time at the right place. And uh, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So were you a touring musician with Carrie Underwood or a studio? Yeah, I was a touring musician with her for three months. Yep, what, and then what, McGraw what was, was that experience work. like? A good, good awesome. friend of mine is a, t a Nashville touring uh, drummer and he does some studio stuff, but it's just, a, it's a really weird, um, business and there's a documentary about it i forget the name of it that it's like hired gun i think it's called mm -hmm. and um you know he toured with rand i should, probably shouldn't say who he toured with um a, a a number one selling country artist and um that he they wouldn't he wasn't allowed to record in the studio but he was only the the uh the touring guy which yes. i thought that was really interesting but who are um who are your favorite drummers I've got a lot. It depends kind of on my mood, <laughs> honestly. You have like the legends, uh, you know, Buddy Rich, right? Thomas Lang, uh, Chris Coleman, uh, Dennis Chambers, uh, like legendary drummers. They're iconic. Neil Peart, right? John Bonham. Great, great, great drummers. But for me, like, there's the, the cats like Larnell Lewis, uh, Jeff Beccaro, mm. uh, the drummer for Toto. Dude, that guy is... Oh, like I have a lot of love for him because have I mean they heard... just they understood groove and pocket and yeah. putting the right 
hit on the right symbol at the right time that just created music. They weren't always so flashy or they had all the chops, but man, they, they knew how to groove. Have you heard that YouTube video? It's the isolated drum track from Rosanna. Yeah, Rosanna, dude. I love that. And you see, you see how, how amazing he is. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that, that kind of stuff just keeps me up at night. I, I, that pulls on the heartstrings for me. Well, I, I am a big believer in music. I've been a musician since I was, I don't know, five or so. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's any time that I can incorporate that stuff things hanging on the walls um, with presentations or just business. It's just, it makes you different and yeah. it helps people remember what they're, you know, came here to see, came there to see, but it's just as, as the performer, not even performer, it's just, there's something magical about music and yeah. to actually create it and to play it. I mean, I can lose hours at a time just sitting there with a guitar in my hand and then, you know, I zone out for a while and I wake, not wake up, but come to, and it's like, where'd the time go? But it's just, it's a form of meditation. Yeah. It's a ton cheaper than therapy too. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's awesome though, that you have incorporated it within your, um, you know, your keynote speeches. That's awesome. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, we do, we do full drum lines, man. Everybody's got sticks and buckets. Oh wow! And we create like a, I mean, obviously we can't do this now because of COVID. But there was a time where we'd have four thousand, three thousand people with drumsticks and buckets, and they're yeah. all in different groups and they're all playing different rhythms, and we're all coming together to create harmony. We're all coming together to create something bigger than ourselves, and so it's powerful. Your drum kit, the one with the it looks like plexiglass with the, yeah, the acrylic, the acrylic. Sorry, with the LED lights in it, it reminds me so much of a Travis Barker set that he yeah. had. But I didn't hear his name. Is he a uh, is he an inspiration to you? Yeah, Travis is great, man. Uh, he can tread. He's a great performer too. I I do love. Here's the thing: most most drummers, like good professional drummers, they they can play. We can almost you can play almost anything. But can you perform the song? You know. It's one thing to lay down a really cool groove. It's another thing to feel that and to take the audience on a ride with you. And Travis does that beautifully well. I mean, he's, he's someone that's fun to watch. Not only is he talented and he puts the right licks in the right place and creates epic music, but he's fun to watch. He's and so fun to I watch, but that. I have a, a, um, a kit at the house here. And from time to time, I'll get behind it with some headphones on and just jam because it's a different experience than sitting with a guitar in your hand and yeah. um i can keep up with just about you know a good number of drummers out there but when i listen i can't play with him he's just so technically proficient and fast i can't keep yeah. up i mean it's it's i've never seen anything like it and i i'm coming from a like an alex van halen john bonham kind of vibe but mm -hmm. he's just mm -hmm. fast and the fills are incredibly just supersonic yeah, he's he's put in the time, you know, and he's built the the chops, he's built the muscle memory that allows him to move that fast. Yeah. And you create that you almost the repertoire, right? You you create the, the tools in your handbag that when you need to reach in and grab them, like it just I don't know, man. Your hands are smarter than your mind's ever gonna be. And when they know that memory, like it's it's a weird thing. And you'll probably yeah, you feel the same as a as a guitarist, right? Like you they just know where to go. Yeah. They know what to do. You know, and you know I don't know. It's it's that cool Zen side of music that 
only musicians really understand. It is. But the frustrating thing is, is that, I mean, I was just working, I was writing this thing the other day and I, on paper, it's really simple, but I just could not get my fingers going. So even, I mean, 30 something years later, 40 years later, um, I'm still learning, which is, I mean, that's the greatest thing about it, I think. But um, one of these days, you and I are going to have to jam. I'm in. All right. I'm in, dude. I'll come out to Utah with my rig. It's probably easier to bring my Helix and a couple of power cabs than you bring your whole thing up. Yeah, that's always, it was always like, where's the drummer live? We're going to go to the drummer's house. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So where you kind of hit my radar was the Undercover Millennial Program. Tell me about that. So five years ago, I'm a part of this. I was in this mastermind group with CEOs, executives, business owners, and we were in New York learning from other fairly successful CEOs and business owners. And this one cat that we met, he was a a CEO of a large sporting good retail chain in Manhattan. And we're sitting there and he's talking about his business, the strategy and how he's had to adapt over time. And he had this thick New York accent. And I'll never forget, he said, you got to adapt or you're going to die. If you don't adapt, you're going to die. <laughs> I was like, wow. It was pretty, pr- pretty profound. And I agreed with him, right? If you don't adapt in business, you're not going to keep up with the market because the market's always changing. So you've got to be able to adapt. And then I asked him, I said, so I'm just curious. Uh, what about your management style? Have you felt the need to adapt how you change with people, not just business? And he answered so quick, Tom, he said, no, not at all. The way I managed 20 years is the same way I manage today and we get results. Another fairly profound statement. And I looked around and in his store, all of his employees were my age or younger. Like just millennials, young, Gen Z, high school, college age kids. And I just thought, I said, I wonder, I wonder if they would say the same thing. I wonder if they would have the same ideology and perception of his businesses as he does. And so I thank the guy for his time. We had 35 minutes to kill until we needed to be to the next place. I had nothing else better to do. So just genuinely out of curiosity, I walked up to the first kid I saw. And I looked just like this. I had a backwards hat on. I was wearing a hoodie. And I walked up to him and I just I asked, hey, I'm just curious. What's it like to work here? Kid got quiet. He kind of looked around. All of a sudden, I feel like we're doing it like an illegal drug exchange. You know something's happening when you do the look around. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay. And he said, do you really want to know? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. He said, I can't stand it here. He said, it's probably one of the worst jobs I've ever had. It's just a job. And, uh, dude, I, I'm a cog in the wheel. We're all cogs in the wheel here. Huh. And he's like, I don't even think my manager knows I'm here today. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, then can I ask why you're still working here? And he said, oh, no, no. I've already applied to three other places. As soon as I get something else, I'm, I'm gone. And I did. I thought maybe the, maybe the kid's just having a bad day, though, right? Maybe he ro- woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and he's just nah, he's having a bad day at work. So I went and asked another employee, and another, and another. And out of those 35 minutes, I had six conversations with his team members. And at the end of those discussions, five out of the six of his employees said they would not be working for him and his store in less than three and a half months. Dude the reality of the employee experience versus the perception of leadership could not be further away from each other. Completely night and day difference. And that was the moment, man. 
that was that was the experience for me that started a business, an organization that I've been doing for almost five years now. And uh, I started it was it's called the Undercover Millennial Program. And I realized, Tom, that I created an environment purely based upon my age that I could go up to people and how, how we've done it. We've worked with 181 organizations. I've interviewed over 10,000 employees undercover. And I go in as someone who's looking for a job. So I dress just like this, normal street clothes. I'd walk into a Verizon store, a Chick-fil-A, a, a retail outlet, a medical clinic. And I would just say, hey, I'm just looking for work. Uh, I had a friend that kind of referred me to this place. And I just, I'm trying to ask a few people about it before I apply. What's it like? And they tell me everything. And you record this. Yeah, like, yeah. So we have hidden cameras. Okay. Yep. You go yep. in and, and here's the before thing. Yeah. hand to set up the cameras or people are you they come in with you? No, they're all on my body. So I have oh, okay. one that's a pen, okay. shoots in ten eighty P and then I have another one that's a lapel. Wow. Depending on what I'm wearing, how I can hide the cameras. Here's the thing. The, we don't do the cameras to figure out who needs to be fired or who do, who who do we need to promote. That's not the reason. The cameras really create a reality when I go and present to an organization because they get to see firsthand what people are saying. If it's a smaller organization, we don't even film because, the good, again, we don't want to get people in trouble. Privacy is always key. We blotch out everybody's faces. We change their voices if we need to. But it does. it paints a really, really, really powerful reality to the experience of what employees are going through. And here's what I found. Most, most employers have no idea that they're doing poorly. They have no clue. And, and they sit down and they have these one-on-one -on -one management meetings and they you know, sell the employee, tell me what I can do better for you. And there's no incentive for an employee to tell you honestly no. how they feel. I've been in corporate America, man, and I hated some bosses. And if they ask me that question, there's no way I'm telling you how I really feel. I don't want to be blacklisted. I don't want to be the dramatic one. I don't want to cause issues. Yeah. So I just, you would keep quiet. Well, the thing that and we say, no, no, it's great, man. You're doing awesome. The thing that interested me is that, you know, owning a video production agency as I do, um, you know, I gravitate towards content media in particular video. And this podcast was supposed to, and does, um, you know, have a foot into that, you know, how people make waves in their lives and career. But I'm always interested in how the use of video media content got them to that, to that point. Totally. And with you, you created this really cool. I, I, would, would you would it be fair to call it a video series? Mm -hmm. Okay, a really sure. cool under camera, un, undercover video series that is. I didn't see it as trying to get people fired. I just saw it as documenting the truth and and using video and technology to show employers the real truth. Um, and I yes. thought that was fascinating. Um, so. With that first example, you probably, obviously, you didn't even know you're going to do it that time after talking uh, with the employer in New York. You didn't record any of that, I would assume. No. Okay. But nope. did you have nope. that conversation with him at some point afterwards of, hey, this yeah. is what I just learned? And that's what everybody has asked. Everybody's like, did you tell the guy? Did you tell him like what you fit? And I never did. I left that day and I was still just so shocked. The guy when we had the conversation, he thanked us for his time and then he disappeared. Yeah. He went back up into the administrator. I don't know where he went. I never saw the guy again. I know who the guy is. Uh, I could reach out to the guy. Um, part of me just wanted to almost, I kind of thank him somewhat too. You know, he's not a bad human. 
he's he's a guy that's that's and done fairly successful in business. But I've almost yeah, I've wanted to almost thank him and say, hey, listen. <laughs> So, you know, I created a whole business and a whole movement based off of well, maybe he you. Knows now. You know, yeah. the thing that I find fascinating about it is it's not, I know you're focusing on business, but as a parent of an 11 year old and a nine year old, I think about that all yeah. the time. And sometimes I'll ask, how am I, you're going to get in trouble, but how, how am I doing as a dad? Yeah. So I always think I'm doing much better than I actually, you know, am apparently in their eyes. But I mean, you could take this concept and apply it to anything, but everybody, yes. everybody works and the majority of Americans work for someone else. So mm -hmm. this is a great tool to, um, so, so who gets the most out of this? Do you think, is it the employer or the employee? I think both. I mean, here's the thing. You can't control anybody. That's one thing I have learned. You, you, you can't control your kids. You can't, you can manipulate them. You can fear, uh, lead them into what, you know, you can threaten them, right? Well, mine are tied but up in the closet right now while we're doing this. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you can try those things and I, you know, I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, it doesn't last is what I'm trying to say. We can't control anybody and all you can control is yourself. And so the hope in this, and when we go and we train executives and leaders and we do this and we, and now, and we've got the new book that's coming out and, it's all of that research. And so I just talk about that. What did we see? What did we find? Because there were universal truths, universal principles. It doesn't, it didn't matter if I was in a school, a fortune 500 company, tech company, a hospital, a construction site, all these principles were universal, man. And, uh, the value I think was when, when it, when it turned on a light bulb for a manager. What when it turns on a light bulb for a parent. What is the go, like number one thing that you reveal to them that they can actually use and, and, you know, enhance the environment and at the, at the workplace. What, what's like the most common thing or the common mistake they're making? That that's really hard because it all obviously dependent, but here's, here's one universal truth that always is the case. Employees either stay for management or they leave because of management. It's the number one reason why people stay. It's also the number one reason why people leave. And when I can help them realize that the choices you choose and choose not to make in the lives of your employees, they matter. And most people are leaving because of you. And when we turn that light bulb on and they realize that, okay, my, my job is not just to make sure there's no leaks on the ship and that we're you know efficient and I, all the cogs and the wheel are moving and we're hitting our sales goals. Oh my gosh, I actually have the ability to be a mentor. I have the opportunity to be a Mr. Jensen. Mm. Holy cow, I'm a storyteller. Not just the boss, not, not so much in the story that you tell, but in the story that you help others live. And, and the, I don't know. And that reality, and I've had so many managers when it's like, okay, I'm going to change. Like I've got to make this place an environment where people can thrive, not just survive because the pain of turnover, the cost, like, first off, we just look at cost. And when someone leaves your organization, you now have to rehire, reman, retrain, you lost morale productivity always drops when people leave. Like it's just a pain for people. And when they realize, oh my gosh, okay, all right, I knew I need to work on the soft skills a little more. Yeah, I do need to do better at the intangibles because that's what people talk about. Every employee, every employee and every kid, it doesn't matter if it's in a parenting relationship, in the classroom, if you're working and influencing in a, in a, in a realm that involves relationships, 
every person in that relationship is asking the other person, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Mm. Let me know when what you do and why you do it. Let me know when it gets to the part about me. And people hear that, Tom, and they go, those entitled little shining stars in my life. And man, it is not about entitlement. It is about good yeah. business. It's about bringing humanity back into the workplace. And when you understand that, as a manager, that's what increases productivity. Well, that's what increases. I think that the entitlement from millennials that that box that they've been put in um, is part of that, but it's also part of as someone that hires myself. I noticed that. I mean, listen. When I got out of um, film school, I was hustling, and I was just you know when when I got a gig or a job, I would stay late on my own time to learn you know new editing. I mean, especially in my field, everything changes so quickly. And back then, it was all tape, and um, and then it turned into digital. So you know, I spent hours and hours and hours and nights and nights and nights just learning on my own they were i was fortunate enough to be able to you know stay there um i don't see that i didn't see that when i was interviewing and everyone that a, a lot of, i shouldn't say everyone but a lot of people that i would interview would just assume all right well i want your job right now <laughs> when can i start directing i'm like whoa whoa, whoa. this doesn't you yeah. know doesn't work like that so i i think there's a balance there of and i think we live in a society where it's immediate gratification i suffer with that um and i think there's a balance there but i i think you know like you said when you can i guess employers just assume that the, they are there to build the company and the employer really if i'm hearing correctly is is the employer is there to help build the employee because, you know, they're not going to be there forever, but it's to prepare them for the next. That kind of bit of humanity, I think, is often overlooked. Yeah, so many managers, they, they literally look at their employees like a fireplace. And they, they stand in front of it and they go, give me heat, then I'll give you wood. Huh. <laughs> like, it's wild to me. Like, give me results. Do your job. Then, I'll, then we'll talk about a race. Then we'll talk about. And, and I get it. You want results. You've got a job that you need to do. <clears throat> there were two factors, man, in our research when an employee was satisfied or dissatisfied with their job. I could trace it back to four types of managers. These two variables determined most of the time the culture that that manager was creating in the organization. And those two variables are number one, standards. You have to have standards as a, as a manager. You've got to have standards as a parent, standards as a teacher. We've got a job to do. We need to run a business. We need to make a profit. If we don't do that, we have no business. I can't pay you. And the whole thing falls apart. I get it. But the second component is connection. The ability to empathize, to realize that your people, your, your, your employees have a life outside of work. And you get that. You also can provide opportunities for growth and possibility and all those things. So connection and standards. Four types of managers. The first manager is the removed manager. This is the manager that should have stopped managing 20 years ago. So they're low on standards. They're also low on connection. What did this create in the workplace? Mm -hmm. Disengagement. Why should I show up on time? My manager could care less. Why should I stay late? There's no incentive to that. I mean, unless I really just want to myself. There's no standards. So we create a disengaged workforce. The second manager is the buddy manager or the buddy parent or the buddy teacher. 
they're really high on connection, but they're low on standards. They don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want their kids to hate them. They don't want them, they don't want them to cry. They don't want them to feel bad. They want to be liked more than they are respected. So what does this create in the workforce? Entitlement. You're my buddy. You're my homie. You're not the boss. You're a homie. We play Xbox on the weekends. This is where the employee almost becomes more of the boss than the boss does. And the third uh, is the controller, the controlling parent, like the controlling manager. Yeah, dude. They're, so they're high on standards. This is like the old like command and control. Like you earn your stripes. Don't don't come in here telling me that you like you want to do all this. I show you that I love you because I give you a paycheck. Be glad you have a job. I want results. I don't care about what you did on the weekend. So they're high on standards, low on connection. What does this create? Rebellion. This is where you find managers constantly going toe to toe with everybody instead of shoulder to shoulder. But the fourth manager, fourth parent, fourth teacher is what we call the mentor manager. They're equally high on their standards and they are equally as high on their ability to connect. What did this create? Connection and respect. It created respect. They weren't always liked, but they were respected because they stood for something. But they also had that connection and the value in the person. Now, there's a reason, Tom, that we call them the mentor manager. Mentorship is not leadership. It's not management. Sometimes we talk about either or. Oh, you're a great leader or don't be the manager. It's not what mentorship is. When an employee hated their job, they talked about the manager. When they loved their job, they talked about the mentor. If you look at any great story, you're a film guy, you get this. Uh, you have the hero of the story. And then who always shows up? The mentor. In literally every great film, you have someone trying to go through a difficult time, and then the advocate shows up and connects them to their dreams. But that mentor does not become the mentor because they're given the position or the title. The mentor has to earn that title. You cannot become a mentor until the mentee invites you into their heart. And when a manager, a parent, a teacher could achieve that, that was what always yielded to the highest loyalty, engagement, respect, and a beautiful relationship where people actually thrive. Because Is there a other. resistance to move between any of those four for the people? Yeah, dude. I've had managers who are like, I'm all yeah. four every day. <laughs> they don't get it. Yeah, yeah. And they, they rotate in between. And the goal is, yeah, sometimes you're the controlling parent and you lose your mind and you scream to your kids because you just you just lost it. And there is no agency. There is no choice. You're going to get in the car and we are driving and I don't well, I don't care what you think. How do you navigate that and, and yourself again, as a business owner, a parent? One of the best things that's helped me is I've always tried to stay the lowest heart rate in the room. Always stay the lowest heart rate in the room. Because when I'm calm and present, I have the opportunity to create a calming presence. I know that sounds maybe fluffy or motivational, but honestly for me, it, it, it's, it's true because I can only control me. I can't control my kids. I can't control my wife. That I can't. You just kind of blew try, my mind with but, that because I've, I've, I've been thinking as a parent over the last couple of weeks of I, I go in, I react too quick, you know? So if someone just, if, you know, if someone just did something, my 
initial, I guess, because I saw it that way as, as parent, my parents, that, and I'm not talking screaming, yelling or anything, but just the initial reaction to react and either fix it or yeah. solve it or, or make my point, you know, known that that wasn't cool to do or why are you doing that to your brother or sister? And now, I mean, that will yeah. stick with me now of just remembering, let me take a pause and try to have the lowest heart rate in the room. Yeah, man. And I think, again, it allows you to influence more. It allows you to create an environment where they're more apt to choose yeah. a better decision. You know, as, when, as parents, sometimes we try to teach a lesson, right? I'm going to teach you a lesson. You're going to learn that you're not ever going to do this again to your sister. And if you do, you're grounded. I'm going to teach you that lesson rather than creating an environment where they get to choose because you can't control Tommy. You can't control Jessica. You can't. You can't control them. You can try. And that's why parents are constantly beating their head against the wall. That's why managers are constantly beating their head against the wall with their people. Instead of trying to connect, understand their standards, you have an option. You have choices. Does any of this apply to a business owner and their client, how to treat the client? Totally. I think mentorship 100% translates. And it's, it bothers me sometimes because we talk so much about the customer experience and we put so much time into that and we, we, don't, we don't put time into the employee experience. And they translate both ways. Imagine if you could be a mentor for your customer, not just a service. There's five characteristics, Tom, that allow a company to become the mentor in a situation to become the guide where people don't just look at you as someone they're bringing in for their production staff or they're, they're not just looking for you for the service but you actually become an advocate you create a relationship where they go okay I need you because without you I can't get what I hmm. am trying to get you become invaluable you become the mentor in the story five characteristics number one I call them the five C's of mentorship number one is confidence if I come to you as a production company and you're not confident and that you understand the equipment, the needs, the know-how, the venue, how you're going to make this work, how it's going to function, the video, how to make that happen, I'm not going to work with you. If you don't believe in yourself, <laughs> who's going to believe in you, right? And that it is a mindset. It is a mindset that invokes trust. You have to be confident. Number two is credibility. What's your history? What's your background? Is this the first video you put together? Is this the first event you ran? Because if it is... <laughs> it's going to be harder to, to trust you. I, I, what's your street cred? And in the business sense, you know, if you're a sales manager for a car dealership, have you ever sold a car before? How many cars have you sold? I want to know your credibility. And then the third piece is a, is competence. You might know everything about movie production and story writing and film, but can you actually get in and edit? Do you understand the software? You might know everything about the game of basketball, but can you get out and actually shoot a hoop? I want to mentor from a practitioner, not a theorist. Competence matters. Number four is candor. Are you going to be honest with me? Even if it, it might not serve you, it, it might mean that as a client I go somewhere else. But are you going to be honest? I want to mentor with someone who's going to give it to me straight. Mentors had the ability to create relationships so strong that honesty could exist. They were really good at making the deposits of trust so that they could make those withdrawals. And number five, the last C, is the ability to care. 
when you look at a client and you don't just see a dollar sign or another gig or just another dollar sign. You see a person. You see an opportunity. You see somebody that you actually truly care about the success of their event. You care about the car that they're going to drive and that it's actually going to be something safe for their family. You care about the service that you provide as a medical professional because that's going to help them live a better life. When people feel that genuinely from you, it matters. I want to mentor with someone who has their best interest mm. in me, not just the sell. So those five C's, man, confidence, credibility, competence, candor, and the ability to care is of a mentor and earn the respect and the opportunity to write a better story in someone's life. All right. So I want to go back to competence. You touched on something I think about often. I want your take on this. Um, oftentimes the best coaches, I'm talking sports coach are failed at their position. Yeah. So a quarterback uh -huh. coach, um, is an amazing coach, but oftentimes he was a fail. He was a backup. So how does that, yep. how does that happen? Yeah. So it's, it's a great, it, it, here's the thing is all of these things can still create results. Even if you don't have them all, this is the most optimal experience when someone is seeking a mentor. Now you could not be the most competent, right? Or you weren't the best player, but you were competent enough and your credibility is amazing and you care more than anybody else. Uh, so, so again, it, it's not like, for example, the controlling manager, the controller, remember that guy, they get results all the time. They don't last, but they get results. And so can it still happen? Yeah. Is it ideal in the pure form formula of mentorship? No, a better mentor when it comes to people choosing who that mentor is, is someone who's a practitioner and they were really good at it. They were really like you could find a great coach and they sucked at playing. You could also find really great coaches and they were amazing at playing. I guarantee that they've got a little bit more sense of competence sure. in the minds of their players because they've, they've got before, the credibility. They've, they've, they've also got the competence yeah. background to prove it. Doesn't mean that yeah. you can't still be a great coach. Well, that's always interested me. Um, all right. So th this leads into your book. Um, your book is I Love It Here. And it's how great leaders create organizations that people never want to leave. Um, it comes out yeah. April, help me out here, 13th. Okay. 13th. And, and where can you get yep, it? Yep, April 13th. You can get it on Amazon. It's available for pre-order. Yeah, just type in I love it here. And yeah, April okay. 13th is the day What now. is, like, give me a little teaser from the book if we haven't discussed one already. Yeah, so the four types of managers are in the book. The power of mentorship is in the book. Uh, the book is not another leadership book written by a you know self-proclaimed leadership expert. That's not what this book is. This is a book written by 10,000 employees who knew when their leaders were getting it right. That's the difference. Uh, this is what good leadership looked and felt like to your kids. This is what good leadership looked and felt like from students. And, and that is the voice I wanted to capture. And it was an honor to be able to do that, to dedicate almost four, four years of my life to capturing those stories and what, what worked, what didn't work. And so it is a prescriptive and actionable narrative on how you can do that, how you can become that. And it's universal. I did write the book 
in a business sense. So for someone who's uh, an employer, a manager, a CEO, but the, the principles in the book are universal to teaching, to parenting, to even just a one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody. It applies to all of that. If you want to create an organization, a relationship, and a connection where people go, I love it here. I love who I am while I'm here with you. If you want to learn how to help people experience you and experience themselves better when they're with you, this is worth well, it. I would even suggest sure. uh, employees reading the book, right? Because by reading it, they, totally. they aside from you know, having goals as to who they want to be if they did want to move into management, but generally people will be parents and coaches and on, in some facet of their life. But it would certainly give them the blueprint of what they can expect and what to look out for in their in their bosses. Absolutely. Yeah, anything that can open up a, the eyes of an employee and help them to see the perspective, because it's hard. My goodness, being a parent is hard. Being a manager, an employer, mm. is hard. It's tough. I've always said every when I talk to leaders and parents or whatever, it's always it's all the same. The coolest part about being a parent is that it matters. Being a leader, it matters. Being a teacher, what teachers matter. The hardest part about being a parent, a leader, a teacher, is that it matters every day. Consistency yeah. is the key. Moments. That's how we also invoke trust in other people, is by doing small things consistently over a long period of time. And I think if an employee read this, they would see how difficult it is for a manager to create this. They would see how hard it is for mom and dad to 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 keep things. Uh, well, you know, know what I'm <laughs> to keep the family. What I'm thinking about. Together. Like, it's, yeah, it's I, I want to prepare my almost twelve-year-old daughter, God, to. <laughs> when she starts dating of what to expect or not not what to expect what to demand from her date so by yeah. treating her the way Amen i do that. now opening the doors and the way i talk to her and what we do together that expectation has been set of if they don't treat you that way they should be gone in your eyes and that's what i think this book represents yes. to employees the this is the layout of managers this is and this is what you should expect out of them mm -hmm. this is should be your demand and expectation okay. so I, I think i encourage all employees to get this book and to kind of reimagine your you know your workplace and and you know you, what your expectations of it are yeah i think every employee deserves three three p's and when i quit my job I did kind of chase the money out of college and I, I stopped touring as a musician and kind of got the real job and the benefits and the salary and all those things and I was miserable man I was just existing every day and I had this quote shared with me by a mentor by Oscar Wilde and the quote says to live is the rarest thing in the world for most people merely exist and that is all. And I love that quote because, my goodness, I think it's something that we want for our kids. We want our kids to really live, live a great life, live some, you know, some, have significance, have happiness. And we want to do that also in our job, a place where we spend so much of our time. And I was just existing every single day. I was doing the same thing day in and day out. I wasn't doing anything I was passionate about. I was making good money, but that was really it. 
and I proposed to two friends. I said, wouldn't it be crazy if you could find a job that allowed you to do three things? And I called them the three Ps. What if it could allow you to do what you were passionate about? You could provide in a way that's financially sufficient for you. And then third, mm. had a sense of purpose where you felt like every day you could do something bigger than yourself. What if you could find one job that allowed you to do all three? And both my buddies were like, dude, your, your head's kind of in the clouds, man. Like, I know it sounds amazing and grandeur and it's an anomaly though. Like, it's, like look at a teacher, you know, their job, it's full of passion and purpose, but every summer they're looking for something else to do to meet, to make ends meet. You know, or look at a doctor. They make tons of money, but they're stressed out of their minds. They never see their family. I don't think what you're talking about is the norm. It's really rare. And then that triggered that, that, that quote from Oscar Wilde. To live is the rarest thing in the world. And two weeks after that conversation, I quit my job. And I burned all the ships. And I jumped into this work. As the undercover millennial, I jumped into the world of professional speaking. And it was in the pursuit of those three Ps. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about this in helping employees understand that you can provide that. You can create an environment where, where people play to their strengths. They actually love who they are at, at, at work. They love the job. They love who they are while they're at the job. You could also provide in a way that people can survive. They can pay their bills. You can, you can help people get out of debt. You, could, you, can, you can do that. And then third, help them tell a better story. Help them live a sense of purpose. Let them know that they're they're contributing to being significant in this well, world. Universally not just speaking, successful. do you find if you do have those three Ps, money isn't the most the, the largest motivating factor, right? I mean, people stay at jobs that maybe pay less, but they're just they have the three Ps. Yeah. Correct. Correct. That's right. And again, and that's why I say with the the the, the providing part that that P is it's, it's the ability to provide in a way that is sufficient mm. for you. Right? It's not wealthy on the world standards of you've got three houses and seven sports cars and you're living up on the hill. Like, that's irrelevant. It's what's sufficient for you. And for some people, that's 40000 a year. Some people, that's yeah. 400000 a year. There's no right answer there. It's just, are you able to provide in a way that's sufficient well, for you? That's great insight. All right, so I've got a couple last questions for you. Um, what's been your biggest failure that led to a breakthrough? So growing up, I never wanted to be a drummer. That was not like the like goal. Like when people would ask me in fifth grade, you know, what do you want to do in your life when you grow up? And I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly. Nothing sounded cooler to me than being a, a life flight helicopter pilot. I had every toy from Toys R Us that you could buy, airplane, helicopter hanging from my ceiling. And I graduated as a senior in high school and I was working on my pilot's license and I had just, dude, blood, sweat, and tears had been put into this process. Any pilot knows that flight school's not an easy thing. And it finally came down to the day where I went up with my flight examiner and you do a written test and then you do the oral test, the in-person test. And you go up with an examiner and they test you on maneuvers and emergency procedures and how well do you control the airplane and can you land and do you just knowledge basic flight knowledge and I went up and he pulled my engine and it's what we call a simulated engine out 
and he grabbed the throttle, pulled it all the way back, and he looked at me and he said, you just lost your engine. What are you going to do? And it caught me a little bit off guard. And I mean, I had prepared for it. I kind of, you know, I felt like I knew. But in, the, in, the, in that moment, man, I just, all the, 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 the old training and the thoughts of what to do just left my mind. And I, I immediately went to, okay, just this land in this field. And I realized that my, my ground to air ratio, so the ability to travel versus the ability that you lose mm. in altitude was sinking. And I wasn't going to make it. And if that would have been a real situation, we all would have died. And he kicked back the engine on and he said, he said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but you failed. And it's up to you if you want to keep going with the test. But at this point, you failed your exam. Dude, like this was my dream. I landed the plane that day. All my family, everybody's out on the ramp at the airport. Signs saying, the world's newest pilot. Oh my, like everyone was so excited. My mom came up to the airplane. I opened up the cockpit. I mean, I had tears in my eyes. And I said, I failed. And dude, that was a, that was a really, really tough day for me. And here's the interesting piece about that. As I took the failure and I still focused on the goal. And I understood that no matter how difficult it was, eventually things get better. And you control your destiny. You control, you still hold the pen, you still have the chance to write the story, all the motivational stuff. But I, I believed it. And I went to work and I studied and I learned everything about every piece of emergency pre preparation when it comes to simulated engine outs. I went up with my flight instructor day after day after day. We pulled engine after engine after engine. And I knew that backwards and forwards better than anything. I went back up with the flight examiner I passed with flying colors two weeks after I got my flight wings. I got my, I, I passed. I, I was a private pilot. Me and my best friend were up flying and all of a sudden our fuel to air mixture for the engine became too lean huh. and my engine stopped and the engine ceased for real. This was not simulated. This was real life. And I remember in that moment being so calm. I was so clear. I knew exactly what to do. And we went right into the procedure checklist. I knew exactly where we were at. I knew what my altitude was. I know what my speed was at. I set us up and we went and we did an emergency landing. We declared Mayday over the radio and we landed safely back at the airport. And I don't know exactly what could have happened. I mean, we could have died. <laughs> like that's a very real thing. But I do believe that I am alive today because I failed. And, you know, that age old saying that you fail your way to success. And it was because of that failure that I'm still alive. And, uh, yeah, it was a it was a really pivotal lesson. In well, I mean, you had the nerve. I mean, it, it's a choice, right? We all have choices to make, whether, you know, you, you're dissatisfied with not having the four, the three P's or it was a choice to get back in the plane and, and study. And a lot, of, I think that's what differentiates us or, or those that succeed versus those that don't. There's oftentimes a choice because I, I haven't seen too many times where people who continue to fight, 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 don't succeed. You know, if you just keep, if yeah. you keep at it, you're going to succeed. Yeah. 
might not be what you intended to do. And it, but... it is. It comes down to like, you know, this, yeah. Yeah. Just being really good at doing small things consistently over a long period yeah. of time. That simple principle has changed my life. You know, we talk about Travis Barker. The only reason he got so good is he did small things consistently over a long period of time. Yeah. That's it. There's this dude yeah. called the yeah. Iron Cowboy. Yeah. Have you heard of this guy, Tom? Cat ran 50 Ironmans in 50 days in 50 states. He lives in Utah. We're great friends. We've spoken at many events together. And everybody asks, how'd you do it? How'd you literally do the impossible? He gives the same answer every time. I did small things consistently over a long period of time. That's hard. That's it. Very hard. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. And I think that's why most people can't achieve it. Consistency. If I ever wrote a book again... It would be about the power of consistency and how to maintain that. I think um, I think he's in uh, the BYLR, Jesse Itzler's group that I'm in. He comes up in that conversation all the time. Yeah, dude, he, he is. He is in the group. Yeah, he is. He's 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 worked with and connected with Jesse a lot. Yeah. He He's running right now 100 Ironmans in 100 He's in the middle days. of that, right? Right okay, now. Yeah. As, he's as in we, the middle of that or what? he's within that process, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he just finished like day fifteen. <laughs> Go on his Instagram and follow James Lawrence. The yeah, Iron I Cowboy. saw a picture on his Instagram where he had like like those walking canes, not canes, but like those hiking. I don't know what they're called, but like he looked like he was in some yeah. pain, but he just keeps going out there and doing it. It's amazing. Yeah. All yeah. right, well, listen, yeah. man, we're gonna wrap this up. I'm gonna put you on the spot, though. Everybody, you're in the hot chair. Everybody that I interview always is in the hot chair. Can you think of one person that yeah. you can pass the baton to that our audience would love to hear from? Yeah, I would pass the baton to uh, a, a guy by the name of Chad Hymas. Chad Hymas is a Hall of Fame keynote speaker. He's an incredible human being. He's a, a paraplegic and was crushed out on his ranch by a four-ton bell of hay that wow. fell back on him. And, dude, his story is incredible. He's amazing. Great, great friend and would right. provide massive We'll talk about that. Your- All right, before you go, where can everybody find you on social media? Yeah, all the places, man. Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and then my website, clintpulver.com. Okay. Happy to connect with anybody. Tom, I seriously appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, I look forward to us jamming sometime. (laughs) All right. Looking forward to it. Can't wait.